0: You're listening to Cancer Covered.
1: Cancer doctors and cancer patients are always eager for new treatments. That's a good thing because it keeps research humming and new therapies coming off the line. But when our eagerness takes the wheel and drives us to use new treatments before we understand them properly, bad things can happen. And in the early days of radiation oncology, bad things did happen some people still fear radiation therapy because of the stories from the past in this episode we'll face the past head-on so we can see through to the present when radiation treatment is safer than it's ever been more effective than it's ever been and with far fewer side effects than ever before
0: you're listening to cancer covered with green bay oncology where we explore pressing cancer issues and look for ways healthcare professionals, patients, and their families can cope better together. I'm Dr. Mitch Winkler. Like it or not, the past has a powerful influence on how we think today. Even our thoughts and fears about cancer treatment. To better understand where some of our preconceptions about radiation therapy come from, I sat down with my partner, Dr. Michael Guyu, radiation oncologist, to talk about the history of radiation therapy. Michael, I've been rereading *The Emperor of All Maladies* by Siddhartha Mukherjee, which is a history of oncology. And you know, it's really hard to blame people for having a dim view of oncology because our field has a pretty checkered past. Yeah, absolutely. And that's true of radiation oncology as well. Oh. Wouldn't you agree? Yep. Yeah. I think today, when people talk about radiation, I mean, the word itself is is kind of loaded, but. You know, radiation is nuclear bombs and Chernobyl and Fukushima and radon that you have to pay to get shielded in your house. But
1: that's not the view that people had of it in the early days. No, I mean, it was actually something magical. I mean, when rentgen first published his first paper in 1895, it was like this magical ray, which he called an X-ray, X being the algebraic variable for unknown you know and and it was just it kind of took off like wildfire there were people that were creating diagnostic units months after this paper so he's a physics professor he, he produces this paper and now people are producing you know diagnostic x-ray units and then probably 6 months after this there's this guy in the US medical student at the time who has been experimenting he creates his own vacuum tube and starts experimenting with it his friends notice that he's got like red rashes on his hands and his skin which is like this radiation dermatitis that he's got and then supposedly, although the data around it is a little sketchy, that he treated a patient with a current breast cancer, I think, April 1896 or so. So fall 1895, Roentgen publishes his paper. Spring 1896, we're treating patients having absolutely no idea what we're doing. Absolutely no idea what we're doing. So the bar to go from innovation from,
0: you know, the lab bench to take it right to the bedside was a lot lower then than it is now.
1: It oh, yeah. like. You go to a hardware store, get some stuff, make it, and you start treating patients. I mean, yeah, that's this guy that was treating patients, he was a medical student. He didn't even have his medical credentials. There was no regulatory commissions. You know, you treated someone, the cancer got smaller, so you went and did it. He actually created a company before I graduated medical school to start treating patients. So yeah, the regulation was was non existent. And the understanding was non existent. You treated someone until your skin got red and then you knew you gave enough. But who, who was this guy? Emil Grub? Uh, medical student at uh, Hanneman University down in, down in Chicago. So an, an industrious, I guess industrious you could call him, mm-hmm. young man who decided to start treating patients probably before he should have and doing things before he should have. Ultimately became very well respected in the field, published a lot of papers and did a lot of research. Unfortunately, suffered for his lack of knowledge of what he was doing. Uh, he had suffered multiple, multiple cancers throughout his life. He had anemia, more than likely, from his repeated exposure from radiation. Ultimately had his left hand amputated, I think, from either tissue necrosis or multiple recurrent cancers because he was in the room with these patients treating them. So mm-hmm. yeah, it was an interesting guy.
0: Where did they get the actual radiation at that time? I mean, it's not like it was, I mean, he discovered it because it, if I remember right, is, as you said, he worked in a vacuum tube factory or something of that sort. And so he, industrial workers even then were regularly exposed to radiation. Right. I think everybody knows about, it. I think it also did the radium clock dials and things of that sort. But I mean, where were
1: we getting therapeutic radiation from at the time or is it known? I mean, a lot of these things were units that people were making sort of on their own or with some help of people that had some experience in mechanics. But you know these weren't you didn't go to a company and buy something. You go from a paper that describes the x-ray to making these units. that's a It's a pretty big jump. And a lot of it was sort of people that I guess were handy and had workshops and could put these things together.
0: The kind of unregulated improvisation that occurred during radiation oncology's early days seems unimaginable to us now, but that's only because we forget two things about the public mindset in the 1890s. People were desperate for new ways to treat cancer because they had so few options, and no one really understood radiation's dangers. The atomic bombs and nuclear accidents hadn't happened yet, so people didn't know to be afraid. So... Why the eagerness? What was driving all this, what sounds like desperation, for cancer treatment at the time in the 1890s? We had one.
1: At the time, all we had was surgery. You either cut it out or you cut it off and it came back. You didn't have many good options. So here you've got this magical invisible ray that just made people's skin a little red. And it was this great tool to to treat cancer.
0: It was a good half century before the first chemotherapy trial was even published. And even that was very, very rudimentary. That's still quite a way in the distance.
1: Well, that being said, that was probably also close to half century before the first radiation trial was ever conducted as well.
0: So the innovation and implementation far outran the research in radiation. Absolutely. So Group does this experimentation with a patient on his own in Chicago, has some limited results, but then starts publishing about it and talking about it. And it generates a lot of
1: excitement. Yeah. I mean, it's a, if you're looking at external beam radiation, it's a tool that's fairly easy to deliver. Patients tolerate really well. If you're talking about using radioactive elements, like at the time radium, it was fairly easy to get. You could, a lay person could buy it. There's even a the thought that it was beneficial that you know, low, low doses of radiation could be beneficial for you. So it was a fairly easy tool for physicians to use and apply. It's good for what ails you. What yeah. does that sound familiar? And, and it's not the public's not really scared of it. You have, you have no idea that this is scary. It's it's good for you. It's good that these baths you could go to in the Southwest where you bathe in this low level of radioactive water it's supposed to be good for you. Supposed to help your body. You know. So this was it wasn't it wasn't a bad thing. You went to do a shoe store, and you wanted to see if your shoes fit. You put your foot in there, and you blasted your foot with X-rays to see where your foot was and with your shoe. You know, nobody was afraid of it. So, there's a quote. That is mentioned in Dr.
0: McCerjee's book uh, from this time period during the early excitement phase from a Chicago physician who, uh, writing in a paper, says, I believe this treatment is an absolute cure for all forms of cancer. I do not know what its limitations are. But we started to find out that there was a real downside to some of this
1: experimentation. Oh, absolutely. I mean, you saw so these radiologists that begin to have necrosis. They're in the rooms with these patients. They're holding shields. And so you're getting soft tissue necrosis of their fingers and their limbs. You're getting high rates of uh, skin cancers. Uh, these doctors are developing anemia because it's impacting their bone marrow. So we're sort of learning through this firsthand experience with these providers, what the downside of, of radiation is.
0: What kinds of things would happen to patients who would go through repeated exposure to some of these early treatments? I mean, things might look like they're, they're going very, very well, but some of, the, some of the really
1: bad stuff that happens with radiation doesn't happen until much later. Well, well, at the time, we didn't really understand how radiation was interacting with cancer cells or with normal tissues. We had no idea how to protect normal tissue. So these doses were often very high. They were short numbers of treatments. And we now know that that dose per treatment is a big driver for normal tissue toxicity. You know, So if you're giving these really big doses, your normal tissue can't really tolerate it. But those are late effects. So sometimes these people would come back with, you know, soft tissue necrosis or with horrible radiation burns, especially with repeated treatments. We didn't understand that you couldn't repeat this either. You know, so our understanding of how it interacts with the body, how it interacts with cancer, what your tolerance is, you know, what different organs can tolerate. We didn't, we didn't, we, we know none of that. No one should carry the burden of cancer alone. And while every physician approaches cancer with their own unique skill set, we all agree on this one simple idea. Hi. I'm Dr. Gaiu, a physician at Green Bay Oncology. The truth is, a cancer diagnosis can make you and your loved ones feel isolated and overwhelmed. And these moments are exactly when you need support the most. That's why all our doctors rely on the support of our team of qualified medical professionals. And here's two of them. Hi, I'm Madison Young. And I'm Tom Beckers. As social workers, we see how meaningful connection brings strength and healing to patients and loved ones facing cancer every single day.
0: Our patients and physicians agree. Sharing your experience in a safe space with others is powerful and therapeutic.
1: That's why we offer a free monthly virtual and in-person cancer support group facilitated for you wherever you are on your cancer journey. So whether by internet, phone, or in person, you'll have access to the support of a community on a similar path. To join us, visit gboncology.com and click on support. When did we finally start to
0: think, okay, this is promising, but we really need to cool our jets here and do this properly. When did when did some rigor and uh, an eye to safety
1: start to appear in the field of radiation oncology? Well, I mean, clinical trials started being conducted probably in the 60s and the 70s, you know, outright clinical trials. Field of radiobiology probably preceded that. I do know that we developed these weapons that could kill a lot of people in just one fell swoop, realized we need to understand what we were doing. And so the development of nuclear weapons infused a lot of money into the field of radiobiology sort of understanding how radiation is interacting with normal tissues. And a lot of the funding even today still comes from, you know, from the government for that. You know, presumably with the military experiences that we have with radiation and
0: the, you know, bombings of Hiroshima and Nagasaki and then seeing what happened to the populace there and then, oh, you know, not just the destructive power of radiation, but also the, you know, the awful kinds of things that can happen when radiation is exposed to tissues. Presumably that went a long way to injecting some helpful caution.
1: Sure, sure. And I just think the cautionary tales of physicians that were developing these horrible side effects over time and really beginning to realize that this magical treatment also had a downside, had a darker side to it. And the need to understand that and control it and harness it was, was paramount. What happened to some of the early innovators? I mean, a lot of them died of cancer. I mean, Groob did, he died of a metastatic squamous cell cancer. Marie Curie, I mean, you know, an amazing woman who, whose research gave us so much in understanding with, with radiation. I mean, she died of aplastic anemia you know, at the time, they, they were working uh, without any shielding, without any protection, without any understanding of what they, were, what they were doing, handling things like uranium and polonium. And so I think that a lot of those early innovators, if you begin, you begin to see them suffer the side effects of their passion and their science, that, that begins that gives you some pause. How much of our ability to
0: dose radiation safely has come from
1: technology? Oh, it's, it's completely come from technology. So, you know, groups started treating patients in 1896. The ion chamber was developed in the 1930s. And that's when you could really calculate dose, right? Before then, it was the skin erythema dose. Skin got red, you gave enough. And that's what you needed to do. So then ion chamber, we can actually calculate doses in a very rudimentary way as compared to what we do now. But you could calculate doses and understand what you were delivering to patients. That's you know almost 40 years before we could actually calculate what we were delivering to patients in, in a real way and understanding what that was. I look at the history of radiation that back in the day when Groob was irradiating people and, and we didn't know what we were doing. It's a little bit like the wild, wild west. You know, you're in the wild, wild mm-hmm. west. There was, it was sort of lawless and you kind of did whatever you wanted. Uh and it's it's funny when you compare that today because my tell patients and other the doctors we're probably the most anal retentive group of physicians in the hospital. We double check something and then have someone double check that and then someone double checks that before somebody gets treated. So it's the research also is is in your training. We you studies and the evolution of the of of treatments for different disease sites is something that is just ingrained in your head and understanding how things evolved and understanding the dosing and understanding normal tissue tolerance it's just a yeah. it's just a very different world than it was than it was back then. Uh, it's also a world now where where good is not good enough. It has to be the best it can be. You know, so when someone gets a rate comes in for radiation, we see you, we we get your your planning done and you come back a week, week and a half later. Well during that week, week and a half, there's a lot that's going on working through multiple iterations of the plan, getting an achievable and safe plan, and that's your starting point. That's not your end point. That's your starting point. And then working on that to try and get that as as good as it can possibly be.
0: Refining the dosing pattern, refining the location. You know, you guys do a lot of computer modeling. And I'm sure another one of the big Factors has changed it besides awareness and a, in a sense of caution, but it's also just the technology that we have to actually control the dose.
1: Oh, absolutely. I mean, the plans I talked about, if you were doing those by hand, it would take you hours, if not days. Now computers can run those iterations in seconds, you know, so you can come up with these plans that no one could have dreamed of, you know, even 30 years ago. So yeah, the technology is driven. It's also driven safety, you know, back in the day, you could put a patient on the table and, the machine didn't know whether you're treating the right leg or the left leg. You could zap it. Well, now that's all built into the systems. You you really can't treat someone. Back in the day when Groob was irradiating somebody, it was this big field. And yeah, you, you hit your tumor, but you also hit a bunch of other stuff around it now with pinpoint techniques using multi-beam arrays you can you can really send high doses of radiation into very confined places and try and spare those tissues that live right next to that things that before that were just getting blasted you know i tell people that the early stages of radiation ecology was like a shotgun era you hit your you hit your target but you hit everything else now we're kind of more in the sniper rifle era that we can really go in and pinpoint things William Faulkner said the past
0: isn't dead, it isn't even past. And that's true of some of the attitudes that linger in our collective memory of radiation's first steps and missteps. And what some cancer patients experienced in the past generations may still color the thinking of cancer patients today. Do you think there's still lingering fear on the part of the public from the early days of radiation therapy?
1: No, absolutely. Because, I mean, the early days of radiation therapy weren't that long ago. I mean, we still have people that had a grandmother that was treated in a different era, you know, that had horrible skin burns or someone had got treated for head and neck cancer and had horrible, horrible burns, was never able to swallow properly again. So I think there is that history that still kind of follows us. I do think that as more and more people get treated in the modern era, that that story is going to change and the narrative is going to change. So there is a little bit of that history that follows us, but I, I think it's beginning to change.
0: What lessons do you think that we as cancer doctors can take from the early history
1: of radiation oncology? It's a good question. I think sometimes proceed with caution. Sometimes that magic treatment has a darker side mm-hmm. and approaching things the way we do now with clinical trials helps us from making the same mistakes that our forefathers made that the innovation and the excitement. Yes, it led to some positive outcomes, but it led to a lot of hurt and a lot of pain and ultimately a lot of death. So I think the process we have in place now is is a good one. I have an interesting story in that regard. My first job out of training, I was a assistant professor at Ohio State, and I primarily treated brain and spine tumors. Uh, and at the time, there was a, not a new drug, but a drug that had been used in glioblastoma in the recurrent setting, Avastin, which most people kind of know the name now. It was kind of a newer drug at the time. It worked fairly well in the recurrent setting. and So we said, well, let's put it up front. Glioblastoma is a horrible disease. Median survival, 12 months, it always ends badly. So whatever we can do to push the needle forward, let's do that. So we created a trial where we did your standard of care, surgery, chemotherapy and radiation. And then there was a group that got a fast and a group that didn't thinking we're going to, we're going to make an advance, right? We're going to be innovative and in interim analysis. These patients were doing worse. They were doing worse than the, the people who didn't get the drug and we couldn't even monitor the tumor. So on MRI, you, it was almost like it was invisible. And then after they were exposed to it, second line therapies didn't have the same impact. So before we went out to treat a bunch of people, yeah, some of the people in the clinical trial were probably hurt by it, but it was a limited number and the trial was stopped and the standard of care was changed. So that was a process I was very thankful for that we didn't just go out and say, hey, this is going to work. And we just treated a bunch of people with it because we would have hurt a lot more people than we ultimately did on the trial. It's hard as a cancer doctor and I'm sure as a cancer patient
0: to see early trials of something that looks very, very promising and then have to wait for it to, to be tested properly. I mean, the, the hard truth of medical innovation, like any innovation, is that most of our attempts don't pan out. They either don't work or, or they have horrible problems that we couldn't anticipate. And as hard as it is to be patient, we really have
1: to do that. Yeah, absolutely. You rush in and you get good intentions. You can still very much hurt people. Mm -hmm. And and I think that any cancer doctor, whether you give chemotherapy or radiation, do surgery, I think we'll realize the impact of what we do for patients, that some of what we do will get better. Some of it won't. And you're always going to be different. Even if you recover from your cancer, you're cured from your cancer, you're always going to be different. You know, and sometimes it's the therapy that changes you. sometimes it's just getting the diagnosis that changes you. But understanding the toxicities of what you do. You know, we're not giving out aspirin and ibuprofen. This is chemotherapy and radiation and big surgery. So just understanding what you do.
0: Yeah, Michael, you know, for me, the story of radiation oncology as as a doctor is a powerful reminder not to let enthusiasm for a new promising treatment get the better of us and and lead us to, to be rash in how we implement things or not take the time we need to test things properly. Or for patients, because we're still very much tarnished by some of what happened in the early days and some of the fear that patients and the public have about radiation therapy and cancer therapy generally, it's, I think the lesson to take is first one of acknowledgement. This is, this is real. This happened, but the fear that you have ab- about the treatments is, in many ways, old news. So much has changed, and although awareness and recognition of what has happened in the past is really important. It's just as important to recognize how different things are, not least because of what people who came before us suffered. Thanks for joining us on Cancer Covered. Please let us know what you think by leaving a review. To learn more, read our blog, request an appointment, search available clinical trials, or even apply to become a member of the team, go to gboncology.com.